Ladies, this is take three for this week's lesson. Um, I forgot to hit record on Tuesday morning, and then Tuesday afternoon I tried to record it, but didn't evidently reset the recorder from going through the microphone to just speaking into the recorder. So we're going to try it one more time. Um, and hopefully this time all records well and you will have a lesson to listen to. This week, last week was Trouble at Shechem. This week is Joseph in Egypt. But do not let the title fool you. There is plenty of trouble in this week's lesson as well. You study Genesis chapters 37 through 41 in preparation for today. For today. And so we are going to go through that with some big picture ideas in mind. Joseph, the favorite son of his father. The son which, with which, the son whom the father is pleased with, robed in honor and then stripped of his robe. There is a plot to kill him and he is sold. He is tried and imprisoned. He is brought low and then given a position of authority and power and clothed again in the robes of royalty. He provides bread to a starving world. As you can see, the story of Joseph is an Old Testament story that points us to the Messiah, to the Savior, to Jesus. So let's look at these passages and see if we can gain a better understanding of who God is, of how he is shaping people and circumstances for his good and his glory. Let's ask ourselves, what does God want his people to learn and see through these stories? Remember, Moses is writing to the Hebrew children as they are wandering in the desert. He is giving them history lessons, but he is also continuing the story of the seed and of the land. And he is continuing to give them an incredible picture of who this God is, who, is who he has called to be his people. And as they're wandering in the desert, he is reminding them he has called them out of Egypt and into the land he has for them. Before we can go forward with these chapters, we got to go back to Genesis 15, 13. And we, we studied that in the first of the study. It's when the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And after that, they shall come out with great possessions. We're getting ready to start the story of how God uses sinful men and sinful motives to accomplish his purposes. So let's start in um, chapter 37, verse 1 through 4. And let me pray for us, Lord, as we dive in to these passages of the scripture. I pray, Father God, that you would open our hearts and our ears and our minds. Lord, that we would see and learn more of who you are, how sovereign, how trustworthy you are, Lord. We thank you for this time together. In Christ's name we pray, amen. 37, 1 through 4, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers, he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. 
and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Jacob loves Joseph. One of the reasons we know that he loves Joseph is because he is the oldest son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. He also loves Jacob, also loves Joseph, the Bible tells us, because he was the son of his old age. We also know that he had another son. Benjamin came after Joseph. So why um, is it Joseph of, Joseph more than Benjamin? And, and one of the commentaries I read said that in Hebrew, the word his, the pronoun doesn't necessarily exist. And so it could be that the writer that Moses is describing Joseph, that he was the son of old age, that Joseph was an old soul, perhaps. Um, you know, some kids are just born old. And Joseph had a sense of justice. He had a sense of what was right and what was wrong, which was why he brought his father's a poor report to him. It was being a good steward. He's not exactly socially Maybe a little socially awkward if he doesn't get that that's going to get him into trouble. It was more important for him to tell the truth. Um, and there may have been a, a way to do it that might have been not caused his brothers to hate him. But those are some of the reasons that we, we see Jacob loving Joseph best. Um, he doesn't hide that this is his favorite son. And we've seen in the previous chapters of Genesis how favoritism of parents to certain children really doesn't lend itself to healthy family life. Joseph is given a robe, a robe of many colors, a long sleeve robe, the robe of an overseer, and his brothers hated him for it. He was the favorite, and now their father had given this son, who is not the firstborn, status and position and authority with this coat. His brothers were acting up as they were caring for the flocks. Joseph comes home tattling, bringing a poor report, but it's also an actual, it's an, it's an accurate report. He wants his father to know his brothers are messing around. Um, and it's interesting, it's ironic to think that Joseph, who is the son of a man who has practiced deception um, and probably hasn't been the best father or parent for Joseph to be someone who is committed to truth and honor. Um, it's comforting that the thing that God intervenes and overcomes poor parenting. As we continue to read in that chapter, Joseph tells his brothers um, about his dream. And then when we look in chapter 9, he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? It doesn't help matters um, in his relationships with his brothers when he shares these dreams. Dreams in those days did carry weight, and they were associated with divine revelation. Jacob was familiar with dreams um, and, and receiving messages from the Lord through dreams. Um, surely Joseph had to know how much his brothers hated him and realize that this was not going to go very far to try establishing, to trying to establish peace with them. Why, why did he tell them? Um, but it is important later in the story 
to recognize the dreams that Joseph had and um, in, in telling his brothers, we have that recorded. And so, so know that they do, they come true. Um, in verse 10, when Jacob says, shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come down, come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Joseph's mother is dead. Rachel is gone at this point. Um, we don't know how old Joseph was when Benjamin was born um, and his mother died. But, but Leah, as the wife of Jacob, is now responsible for these children. And how horrible for her would that be? Can you imagine? Not only are you not loved, but now you have to take care of these favorite children from this favorite wife your younger, beautiful sister gave birth to? Those are hard things to swallow. And just as the Lord opened Leah's womb, saw her and opened Leah's womb, um, it is sweet to think that also the line of Jesus comes through Judah. The line doesn't come through Joseph. The line doesn't come through the firstborn Reuben or even the second or thirdborn Simeon or Levi. It comes through Judah. And Judah is Leah's son. So the line comes through her. And then also she was the one who was actually buried with Jacob. Rachel was not. Leah was. And so there are two sweet things um, besides God opening her womb first that, that the Lord does give Leah. Um, his brothers were jealous of these, these dreams that he's reporting to them. Um, but Jacob kept the saying in mind. It's interesting. He questioned Joseph, but he held on to these things. It reminds me of when, much as Mary pondered in her heart the news that the angel brought to her. There are a lot of things in this next three or four chapters that we'll read that will remind us of other phrases and places in Scripture. Um, but Jacob remembered these things. He kept these sayings in mind. Now, if we go on in verse 12, we see that Joseph is not with his brothers. They're at Shechem tending the flocks. Why in the world did they go back to Shechem? There was trouble at Shechem. Why would you go back to the scene of the crime? But Jacob calls him, um, come, I will send you to your brothers. They're pasturing in the flock at Shechem. And Jacob says, I mean, Joseph says, here I am. Here I am. It makes me think of Samuel in 1 Samuel 4.10, where for the third time when the Lord appears to Samuel when he is sleeping, and he responds and says, Speak, for your servant hears. Your servant is listening. Just like Samuel was obedient to God's call, Joseph is obedient to God's call. So Joseph heads out. Um, verse 15 tells us that a man found him wandering in the fields. Can you imagine that picture? We've got Joseph in his coat of many colors. He may have some cows or donkeys or sheep with him. Who knows what he's got with him? But um, he is looking for his brothers. He's in Shechem. What are you seeking? He says, I'm seeking my brothers. And the man who found him wandering the fields says they've gone to Dothan. Dothan is probably another 13 days away. Joseph is 17. His dad sent him to Shechem. You know what? Can we blame him if he just goes back and says, Hey, Dad, I went to Shechem. They weren't there. I heard they might be in Dothan, but I wasn't sure, so I just came on back home. Joseph doesn't do that. He demonstrates a work ethic and an integrity 
um, that we see over and over as we study Joseph in the next couple of chapters. The, the passage tells us that the brothers see him from afar. They saw that robe. They saw the shape of it. They saw the colors of it. And they were jealous and they were angry and they decided to kill him. Reuben, who is the firstborn, who should have been the favorite, but actually right now is way out of favor because he had slept with one of his daddy's concubines, said, no, 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 let's not kill him. Let's not kill him. Verse 22 tells us that Reuben wanted to rescue Joseph and restore him to his father. This was his plan to get back into the good grace of old man Jacob. His motives and intent had nothing to do with saving Joseph and everything to do with saving himself. The brothers agree. They throw him into an empty pit. This part of the scripture doesn't tell us Joseph's response, but in Genesis 42, 21, when the brothers are in Egypt and they are speaking amongst themselves and they do not know who Joseph is yet and do not know that he understands Hebrew, they say to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. So here Joseph is over in this pit pleading with his brothers. And what do they do? They sit down and they eat a meal. They sit down and they eat a meal. And ladies, probably this meal are provisions that Joseph has brought them. It's so callous. Then the caravan shows up. The caravan that would have missed them if they had been in Shechem three days earlier. Guess who this caravan is made up of? It's made up of Ishmaelites from Gilead. Ishmaelites are descendants of Ishmael. We know God made a great nation of Ishmael. Sounds like it is a lot like Alabama. Everyone is related to someone somehow. But these are his second or third cousins. And his brothers sold them to the Ishmaelites. This is all part of God's plan. This is part of God's plan to get his people to Egypt, where they're going to be enslaved. The descendants of Ishmael are playing a part in God's plan. Ladies, the way he weaves things together is, is, is beyond our comprehension. You know how the story goes. The caravan shows up and Judah speaks about selling him rather than leaving him for dead. Judah is number four. In the birth order, why would they listen to him? Reuben's on the outs because he slept with the concubine. Simeon and, Levi, Simeon and Levi, number two and three, are out because they killed an entire town of men. Judah is rising up as the heir apparent. And as I mentioned earlier, he is. He is the line through which the Messiah is born. The line of Judah is the line that Jesus, the offspring, the Messiah, the Savior, comes from. Judah sells his brother. For 20 pieces of silver. Now Reuben has been off away from this and doesn't know this has all gone on, possibly because he was going to sneak back, get Joseph out of the pit, take him back to Jacob, restore him, and get back in good graces. He has a panic attack when he realizes Joseph is not in the pit. His plan has been foiled, and he's more worried about himself. What's going to happen to me? The brothers then go in to see Jacob with a robe and a goat. The sons of Jacob deceive their father with a robe and a goat. Just as Jacob had deceived his father with a robe 
and a goat. Will the deception never end? Nope. It doesn't, because the next story we come to, the story that is strange and bizarre and interjected in this account of Joseph heading to Egypt. We're off on one, one story. Joseph's going to Egypt, and then all of a sudden, no, we're going to talk about Judah and Tamar. We pointed out as we've gone through these chapters, there's so many juicy details that are left out of the story that, that we want to know. When I started reading this chapter, I was like, okay, I need a timeline. I need to understand when this happened in the progression of the story. How long was this from the beginning to the end? Because in one chapter, Judah marries. Judy has children. His children grow up and are old enough to get married. Um, That's not a short period of time in this chapter. Commentator Matthew Henry writes that the initial part of this story probably happened when Judah was young, 16 or 17, which would have been before the incident in the field. So why is this story here? Why is this story tucked in right here as we are getting ready to follow Joseph to Egypt? God, through Moses, wants his people to pay attention to the line of Judah. We're going to talk about Joseph, but don't forget about Judah. There's going to be a large focus, a large period of time when we're looking at Joseph. And we don't want to forget that the lineage we are focusing on, the lineage God wants his people to remember, is through Judah. So we start off with a lot of no, 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 no's in the first part of this chapter. Judah left his family. He went to hang out with Hera. Hera is a Dulamite. And we get the sense that Hera may be a little bit of bad news. And then Judah saw Shua's daughter. We never learn her name. We just learn that she's Shua's daughter. And Judah married her. We've been taught over and over again in Scripture that the seed must come to the family of Abraham. Remember, Abraham sent his servant to find a wife for Isaac. Isaac and Rachel sent Jacob back to Laban to find a wife. Now, here is Judah, and he goes and marries a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua. This seems to be a departure from the plan that God has set up. But remember, God's plans can never be thwarted. Judah's wife bore him three sons, Ur, Onan and Shelah. Judah married Ur to Tamar, who was probably another Canaanite woman. So we, we you know, got the, ta- the Canaanites all up in there now. Ur was so wicked, God put him to death. We don't know what Ur did or didn't do that was so wicked that it caused the Lord to strike him dead. So he did, though. Um... So then Judah sent Onan into Tamar to give Tamar a son who would be the firstborn heir. Onan did not want to produce a firstborn heir for his dead brother Ur. He wanted the portion and a half of the firstborn for himself. So he used Tamar. He went into her. He slept with her. But he did not honor her. He did not give her the opportunity to bear an heir. Remember, that is what a woman's worth was in. We don't know how long she and Ur were married. We don't know why she didn't have children through Ur. Um, But the Lord put Onan to death as well. He was evil. So, poor Tamar. She has two evil husbands. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun. She's barren, and she's been twice widowed. Think about what we've talked about, the status of women. This is low. And then you've got poor Judah. 
he has two dead sons. Had to be that Canaanite woman's fault. She must be evil. So Judah sent her back to her father's house until his youngest son was old enough to be married. Wink, wink, wink. Judah is stalling and hoping to come up with an alternative plan because in his eyes, she is the problem. I think in this day, if something like this happened to one of our daughters, we would welcome her back. I don't think, I know, we would welcome the opportunity to have her home, to love on her, to enjoy her company. Remember, that is not the case in this culture. She was an embarrassment. She was a liability. She was barren. She had killed two husbands. And she was now being sent back to her father's home for him to care for her. Her status is low. She is a burden. And she is desperate. There is no security for her. She, there's no way she's going to find another husband. She doesn't have any children. Um, this, this is not a good, a good situation. Uh, we come to the part of the stomach, the, the story that really can turn our stomach for so many reasons. Judah's wife has died. Judah was not honoring his promise for Tamar to marry Sheila. She was desperate. Desperate times call for desperate measures. She takes on the appearance of a prostitute. And I want to make that clear. She takes on the appearance of a prostitute. She is not a prostitute. But she takes on the appearance of a prostitute and positions herself where she knows Judah will pass by. How humiliating this must have been. She also has a pretty good idea, good idea that he's going to go for this. She knew his character. And, and he did. He did. Um, he, he was happy to take advantage of her. And she said, what will you give me? Can't you hear her thinking to herself? You were supposed to give me Sheila. But since you have not, what are you going to give me? His answer, a goat. A goat rather than a husband. A goat rather than a protector. A goat? A goat? I get a goat? Tamar is no dummy. And so she asked for a security deposit. The signet, the cord, and the staff. That was his identity. Judah did not bat an eye. He was after one thing. And just like Esau sold his birthright for his appetite to be satisfied, Judah basically sold his identity to be sexually satisfied. We know that when Judah sent the goat by his friend, there was no cult prostitute to be found. Three months later, Judah finds out his daughter-in-law, who was supposed to be waiting to marry Sheila, is pregnant. Lucky for him, he can get rid of this problem. How do you solve a problem like Tamara? Tamara has just been revealed. She has clearly committed adultery, and that is punishable by death. You have to think there was no guarantee that her plan was going to work. She had not gotten pregnant with her. We know why she didn't get pregnant with Onan. But she has one shot to get pregnant by Judah. One shot to expose him. One shot to bring him to justice. God has his hand in this. God can use circumstances beyond our comprehension for his purposes. Remember, we are talking about the line of Jesus. Tamar has the upper hand when she's called out for being pregnant and committing adultery. Judah, to his credit, 
recognizes his sin and admits his part in the story. We are told that he did not know her again, which I hope means not only did he show her the respect that she deserved, but that he set her up, that he took care of her, that he protected her and the sons that she bore him. A Canaanite is now grafted into the line of Jesus. God made it clear that salvation was not simply for the Jews very early on in the story. In the story that the Israelites are hearing as they wander through the desert, they know that there is a Canaanite who was given birth in this, this story. Um, and, and what a beautiful thing for us to be made aware of early, early on. was not an afterthought. Now we get back to the drama unfolding in Egypt. We see that Joseph has been sold into the house of Potiphar. Um, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, verse 2 tells us that the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. The Lord was with Joseph. We see that phrase repeated several times in the chapters that we study this week. It does make us wonder, why was this not the man that the line came through? Why not Joseph? This man of character, integrity, and a man that the Lord was with. Why would God choose Judah, a deceiver who showed very little character, over Joseph? It's a reminder that God's ways are not our ways. We get to verse 6, and it tells us that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. He's probably between 19 and 26 at this point. Y'all, he is the ultimate pool boy. Okay, his mother, his grandmother, his great, they were all beautiful. He got the good-looking gene. Potiphar travels a lot. His wife is feeling neglected. This eye candy looks very good. He's technically a servant, a slave at the household of Potiphar. Does she assume because of that she has the right to refuse him, the right to, the right to him, the right to take advantage of him? He refuses and refuses her advancements again and again. How did he withstand this temptation? She may have been old. She may have been ugly. But we know that God's presence is what ultimately allowed him to withstand this temptation and do what was right. At one point, she finally decides that she has had enough rejection and suffered enough humil humiliation, and she takes matters into her own hands and physically attempts to make this happen. He leaves his coat and runs. Here we have another incident where being stripped of Joseph's coat truly changes the direction of his life. Are these coincidences? Are these accidents? No. God is using these circumstances to carry out his plans. The story laid out in the next two chapters is what God uses to land Joseph in Pharaoh's house in a position of power. In our lives, circumstances, relationships, difficulties, suffering often do not make sense. Do we believe that God is trustworthy? Do we believe that he is in control, that he is over all things, that he is working his will in his way to accomplish his purposes? Ladies, if we live a life questioning God, if we live a life doubting God, if we live a life refusing to give thanks in the place that he has put us, we are rejecting his provision. We are running from his peace and we are avoiding his presence. Psalm 37.3 reminds us to dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. I've really been stuck on 
Psalm 37, 1 through 7, recently in my February letter to the women at Covenant, I shared that God has really had me meditating and pondering these verses. There are some action verbs in these passages that I am really praying God will ingrain in my life. Do not fret those who are evil, those who are selfish. Do not be envious of those who seem to be ahead in life, even though they are immoral or dishonest. Trust in the Lord. Do good. Dwell in the land. Be content where God has me and be faithful. Delight in the Lord. Commit my way to him. Not go my own way and hope it is the way that he approves. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for God. We see Joseph doing these things over and over again. We see him trusting the Lord. We see him dwelling faithfully where he's been placed. We see him committing his way to the Lord and waiting patiently. All right, enough of my side. Let's get back to the story. Verse 19, Potiphar's anger was kindled. Usually in scripture, when we see the words, his anger was kindled. They are followed by against so-and-so. Potiphar just says, his anger, the Bible just says his anger was kindled. Potiphar did not have Joseph killed, which he could have. Rather, he put him in prison where the king's prisoners were confined. Who was ultimately over the prison of the king? The captain of the guard, Potiphar himself. We can deduce that Potiphar was not convinced that his wife's accusations against Joseph were completely true. It is possible that Potiphar was more angry with his wife than with anyone. In verse 21, we are told the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Again, Joseph finds himself brought low in difficult circumstances. Again, Joseph is honorable, and again, the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. We move into chapter 40, and we have the story of the dreams of the chief cupbearer and chief baker. They recognize these dreams are significant and have meaning, and they are troubled by them. They do not have access to the magicians and sorcerers since they are in prison. And when Joseph asks them, why are your faces downcast today? They respond that they had dreams, but no one to interpret them. Joseph responds that interpretations belong to God. If you have been, if you're at Church at Covenant, we have been studying Daniel in Sunday school. And that is something we see Daniel saying again and again. The interpretations of dreams belong to God. So we see God give Joseph the interpretation of those dreams. And these interpretations come true. There's also something unique in this story. In verses 14 and 15 of chapter 40, it says... Only remember me. This is what Joseph is saying to the cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. This is the first record of Joseph asking for something for himself. The first time he is expressing his innocence. It's respectful. There doesn't seem to be any resentment or bitterness. It's a simple request. Remember me. He is with these two men, one who is given life again and one who is killed. He asked the one who is given life to remember me. We later see a favorite son 
between two men, one who is given eternal life and one who receives death. And we hear those same words, remember me. The man who is given eternal life is asking the only one who has the power over life and death to remember him. We're going to head into the home stretch of chapter 41. Two years later, Pharaoh has a dream. No one can interpret it. And the chief cupbearer finally remembers Joseph. How quickly he had forgotten this man who brought good news. But in God's timing and plan, the chief cupbearer remembers the Hebrew slave who could interpret dreams. Joseph is shaved and cleaned up. And I think about Esther before she was brought for brought before King Xerxes. And she was not just simply shaved and cleaned up. She was a long, long training process of being made beautiful. But it was that, that, that same idea. Um, so Joseph is brought before Pharaoh to hear and interpret his dream. Pharaoh is pleased with Joseph's assessment of the dream and enamored by the credit that Joseph gives to the Most High God and the practical solutions that Joseph offers. In verse 38, we see Pharaoh respond. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this? In whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck, and made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name, Zaphonath Paneah, and gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph was over the land of Egypt. Things have changed for Joseph. No longer is he a slave. He was sold to the service of the highest bidder. But God has exalted him. And when Joseph was riding out amongst the people, they called before him, bow the knee. He was 30 years old. And over the next seven years, he stored grain in all the cities. He had two sons. And when the seven years of plenty was over, he oversaw the distribution of bread to a dying and hungry world. Ladies, let's consider the pictures that Christ shows us. The pictures of Christ that God shows us through Joseph in these chapters. And these came from commentator Arthur Pink. Joseph and Jesus are both beloved sons. They are both robed in honor. They are both hated for their words. They are both sent by their father and rejected by men. Their brothers plotted to kill them. They are sold for silver by Judah and Judas. They are stripped. They are tried. They are imprisoned for crimes they did not commit. They suffered between two men, 
one who was delivered, and one who was destroyed. Daniel was the revealer of secrets by interpreting dreams. Luke 10.22 tells us, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Joseph was given a new name. Jesus was given the name above all names. Joseph was exalted over Egypt. Philippians 2, 9 and 10 tells us, Therefore God has holy, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in earth, in heaven, and on earth and under the earth. Joseph is clothed in garments of fine linen, and a gold chain is put around his neck. In Revelation 19:13, we see Jesus. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Joseph is the giver of bread. Jesus is the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We have a Savior. And as we consider this lesson, I am moved that as we are conformed to the image of Christ, we are called to share the bread of life with others. There are people in our world, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our sphere of influence who are literally starving for a Savior. We are the instruments God is using to share the bread of life. This is a high calling. And I pray that we would consider the life of Joseph and consider the words of David and trust in the Lord. Do good. Dwell in the land. Befriend faithfulness. Delight in the Lord. Commit our way to the Lord. Trust in the Lord again. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for Joseph. But Father God, more than Joseph, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you, have a, you, thank you Lord, that you sent a Savior to take away our sins, to die on a cross, to rise again and ascend into heaven and is seated at your right hand. Father God, I thank you that we have an advocate in heaven. Lord, I pray that as we meditate on this, as we review questions and talk about it, Lord, that you would continue to press these truths into our brains, into our hearts. Lord, that, um, that we would truly understand more of who you are and what you have called us to. The mercy that you show us, the grace that you give us, Lord, it is overwhelming and amazing. We give you all the thanks. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.